Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of the Project Liberal podcast, the official project for Project Liberal. Uh, I am your host, Joshua Eckel, co-founder of Project Liberal, and I am joined, as always, by our co-host, co-founder, Jonathan Casey. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to have an interesting uh, conversation with somebody who is uh, a huge advocate for liberalism in Africa and South Africa. Uh, and we're going to talk a bit about something that's going through the news in the United States right now. So as many people have heard, um, there have been many viral posts over the last two to three weeks about uh, this far left South African political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, had a rally at the end of July. And as part of this rally, there was a call to kill the Boers or kill the whites in, the, in South Africa, or at least that's the framing that you've seen on social media. This went viral, international outrage, a lot of conflict and you know conversation around that. And I, I wanted to bring on our guest to talk about the state of race relations in South Africa, to talk about uh, you know the economic conditions and maybe a classical liberal or a liberal path out of that. So uh, we are joined today by Martin Van Staten, who is a jurist and author based in South Africa. Uh, he is currently the head of policy at the Free Market Foundation and the former deputy head of policy research at the Institute for Race Relations, which is the oldest continuously existing classical liberal think tank in the world. Martin, thank you for making time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's a great honor to be here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we are very, very excited to have this conversation, and we're a huge fan of your work. I know that we, we've we seen your stuff on social media for a while, and you've led uh, the classical liberal movement, or at least you're a very vocal uh, classical liberal on the other side of the ocean, and we're very excited to have a conversation. So I'm going to kick let Jonathan kick us off with some of the questions, and we'll get into the meat of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, we all saw the viral video of them singing the song, and there was, you know, a lot of right-wing commentators were taking this and, and painting a massive white brush that all... Every all black people in South Africa believe this. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to murder everyone who doesn't look like them. What's the general context that Americans are kind of missing? What, what are we not understanding? What do we not not see? Because when we see that, we look, wow, they're really talking about killing people. So what? As a South African, when you watch as a white South African, what do you, when you watch that video? What are you thinking? What's the context that's going on in, in your mind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let me try and distill a lot of this. It's obviously a, a, a big story, but effectively, it's it's not a new song. So the the chant isn't uh, anything recent. Uh, there's been litigation about it, in fact, for decades now. Um, and uh, the Free Market Foundation and uh, other organizations are in an appeals phase about uh, the litigation around it. But effectively, uh, it is said that this is a chant from the anti-apartheid days, uh, uh, and the people who sing it, who chant it, say that it's not about killing white people per se, but it's about ending the apartheid system. Um, uh, and and they, it's still sung today as a way to kind of celebrate um, uh, the, the struggle against apartheid and, in fact, to energize struggle against continued capitalist exploitation and exploitation by whites, etc. But it's not a call to action for violence now obviously i'm i'm not a i'm, I'm not too keen on that uh, that explanation I, I i think that it's self-serving because it, it always tends to be these militant very violent 
uh, authoritarian uh, uh, communists. Uh, the the guy who sung at Julius Palema describes himself as a Marxist-Leninist, uh, and and his party, the EFF, very much describes itself as militant. Uh, he, uh, I think it was last year, he said that people should be willing to shed blood and die for the revolution and so on. So this is not a peaceful kind of guy. But I think the missing kind of important context that makes uh it, it, it sometimes helps but usually doesn't help uh, uh when when the west gets a hold of, of these things is that there's no there's no impending race war in south africa it's not like white south africans have to kind of hide their faces as they walk in the street and kind of scurry away uh just so black people don't see them uh, my former employer, the Institute of Race Relations, has done annual surveys on this topic. And I mean, I live here. It's, it's, a, it's a very great place as far as race relations is concerned. Uh, most South Africans of all races, including and especially black South Africans, uh, uh, be believe other South Africans are... Uh, we're in this together. Uh, we need each other for for the future of the country to work and, and for everything to turn out great. So there is no there is no real... Uh, bad racial race relations on the ground on on uh, amongst ordinary South Africans, the political elite is obviously a little bit detached from that. So the ANC, the governing party since 1994, and the EFF specifically and particularly, they get a lot of mileage out of uh, acting like there's still this kind of race conflict in South Africa, and they it's it's an, it's low hanging fruit. Especially we have an election next year, like you. Uh, so we're in that cycle now where politicians are trying to grab easy things to kind of be on, on media and so on. And race is one of them. So white South Africans still tend to be uh, wealthier than, than black South Africans, uh, uh, very low levels of unemployment amongst uh, white South Africans and so forth. Uh, and a lot of politicians think, well, we need to kind of exploit this fact and create the impression that whites are oppressing uh, black South Africans and therefore we need to kind of generate this hysteria and so on. Um, uh, just about the song itself, so the word boor, uh, kill the boors, the boors, uh, that, uh, that is either a reference to white Afrikaners uh, or it's a reference to farmers. So the word, it has a double meaning. Uh, whites in South Africa tended to be agriculturalist farmers uh, centuries ago and kind of the, the identity became entwined. Um, but I think when when that song is sung, it definitely refers not to the occupation of farmers, but certainly to kind of white uh, white Afrikaans speaking, tending to be uh, South Africans. Um, uh, although, yeah, you uh, when when the word farmer is said in South Africa, especially by these politicians, they also tend to simply mean a white farmer. Uh, uh, even though we do have obviously uh, many many black farmers now, so yeah, that's kind of a quick run through of of the context. Um, but but just to say the, the important thing is there's no there's no white genocide here. Please, if you see that uh, a lot of Americans are, are are getting into that, that's it's not true. There is no white genocide in South Africa. I wouldn't be sitting here and like in an office building having a conversation about liberalism with you guys if there was a white genocide i'll be in some refugee camp somewhere or i'll be hiding in a bunker or something it's not happening um i'm i'm sure and uh, I, I think there has been enough evidence that there have been racially motivated killings in south africa by black south africans against white south africans that does happen but it's not it's not an endemic kind of organized systemic 
program by the government or by some syndicate to wipe out white South Africans from the face of the earth. None of that is happening. And uh, all the big organizations in South Africa that are kind of seen as white, they would also tell you there's no white genocide, but there is a, a kind of a threat to rural South Africans, including many, many white South Africans. Uh, and that's kind of where the pushback against the chanting of this song comes from. It's to say that, listen, we already have people vulnerable in rural areas. South Africa has one of the highest homicide rates in the world. Uh, uh, so we already have this problem of, of violent crime and chants like this uh, just serve to, to create more uh, uh, political cover for violent crime. So that's kind of where the pushback against songs like this is coming from. Okay. Uh, I, I had a quick question. So you touched on the fact that you guys are going to have an election next year, just like the United States. And there are a lot of people projecting that the, the ruling party is going to lose a lot of power. Now, I don't know anything about South African politics. So I'm curious do you see the EFF as potentially gaining more seats and moving South Africa farther left? Uh, do you see, what do you think the projections of the political dynamic in South Africa stand right now? Sure. Yeah. So the ANC has been losing support uh, since the early 2000s. It kind of reached a climax with a, a huge percentage of support around the country, and it's been steadily declining. And now with our previous municipal elections, 2021, the ANC received less than half of the votes cast. Uh, it still controls most of the country, uh, but that was kind of what triggered people to start thinking, okay, well, this national election is going to be the first one where the ANC gets less than 50% of the vote. That's uh, likely. Um, the, the kind of debate now is about how much less than 50% they're going to get. So if they get just under 50%, uh, they would get, go into a coalition with uh, one of the very small parties, the non-notable political parties, of which we have many in South Africa, and, they'll, and things will probably kind of just continue as it is. The concern is if the ANC gets like 40% of the vote, or maybe 35% of the vote, then it will basically have no choice but to go into a coalition with the EFF. And that is where a lot of the concern uh, comes in. The EFF is hanging around 13%. Maybe on a good day, it might get 15%. But we don't think that it's it's a it's not a mass party. It's very dogmatic about its Marxist-Leninism. So it's going to hang around those kind of percentages, hopefully closer to 10%-ish. Um, yep. So the concern is they might the, the ANC might be forced to go into a coalition of the EFF next year if they do very badly. So it's, it's kind of a bitter pill. We want the ANC to do badly in the election because they've been totally misgoverning this country for, for decades. But you don't want them to do, do, to do that badly that uh, they are forced into that type of coalition. Makes sense. So, for the sake of our audience, ANC is the African National Con uh, Congress, and I and and my you know the ANC uh, you know was once what led by Nelson Mandela at one point. That's led the South Africa out of apartheid. I am curious, what, how would you characterize ANC's politics today? <laughs> uh corrupt uh, okay. very very corrupt uh, yeah. so so um it's it's almost that kind of self-american thing you you uh, dream up about like the the left-wing government tends to just be looting and so on that's definitely what we have uh the the great anc of of mandela was very very short-lived 
Um, uh, arguably, Mandela was just an exceptional individual amongst amongst the ANC. But mm. so if you if you look back to the 1940s, the ANC then already went into an alliance with with communists. Very understandable in the in the context that the communists were the only or the Soviet Union, etc., were the only ones willing to support the ANC. The United States and so on weren't uh, prepared to support the ANC when it was slightly more liberal back in those days. But since then. It's it's been very left wing, very very socialist. In the '90s, it was kind of hit by that post-Soviet realization that well, our big ally in in the East is now gone, so we kind of need to be pragmatic. Um, and then we saw some call it pragmatic left wing kind of free market economics from the ANC there for a short spell. So kind of Clinton maybe ish. Um, that was also quite short-lived. By 2017, when Jacob Zuma became the president, things took a very hard leftward uh, a turn, and, and things became significantly more corrupt. Where um, uh, people are the high-ranking politicians are just brazenly and openly stealing taxpayers' money and and really mismanaging uh, state-owned enterprises. And so on. So the ANC now, if I if I had to uh, give you a clear ideological answer, I would say kind of center left, kind of uh, so it's it's dominant wing, uh, very very left wing. Uh, it's more ideological uh, wing, but ultimately the people who have power and access to funds simply simply corrupt. So they'll they'll go kind of the path of least resistance to kind of ensure that the gravy train of of corruption uh, keeps on flowing. So uh, South Africa, you know, had decades of apartheid and, and in the early 90s came, came out of that. What are some of the major mistakes? What are some of the, you know, the, uh, South, uh, Black South African, I think, have a high employment rate of unemployment rate of over 30 percent. And yeah. there's a lot, still massive amounts of poverty. And as you said, violent crime. What yeah. are some of the mistakes coming out of out of out of apartheid that were made that really have an impact, lasting impact to today? What are some of those what are some of those key things that you say, if we had just done a few things differently, mm. you know, the outcomes would have been far different? Yeah. So uh, the, the first thing that, that I, I, I feel dirty for having to say, but yes, it's a good thing that apartheid was ended. Unfortunately, a lot of people kind of libertarians in the West are like, oh, white South Africans made a huge mistake. And it's like, well, and ending tyranny is never a mistake, but the way you go about that is, is important. Um, and certainly mistakes were made. So the National Party, which was were responsible for apartheid, uh, by the by, the mid '80s had certainly become far less of an ideological kind of uh, racist fascist organization. It's it's it became very middle of the road, pragmatic, trying to get a settlement for the country that that well, was broadly acceptable to everyone. They became federalists, uh, a good thing. Uh, the the broadly classical liberal movement in South Africa up to that point was always a federal movement, a federalist movement rather. Um, and the the National Party kind of joined uh, into that. The ANC was never federalist, and they were very against any type of federalism in South Africa, um, and and very much against the kind of principle that when apartheid ends, there must be a radical decentralization of of authority and of power, and that there must be very strict constitutional uh, uh, checks and balances and so on. The ANC was always against that. Uh, it kind of nominally, nominally supported a Bill of Rights, which is great, and we have that, but uh, it, it would not accept anything that kind of put the central government in a straitjacket as far as uh, economic policy was concerned. So the, the National Party and the uh, other anti-apartheid parties kind of pushed 
during the end of apartheid for a significantly decentralized political system in South Africa. And the ANC didn't want that. And so we kind of met in the middle. And there is unfortunately the, the big mistake. And that is that we didn't decentralize nearly enough. Uh, so we settled on a very, South Africa is a federal state. Uh, the constitution is a federal one, but it's uh, one where the central government so has a very high degree of, of authority and the lower levels of government have have less uh, significantly less less authority so that's that's unfortunate and that's part of the the kind of the reason why any mistake that is made by the central government today is reverberated throughout the country so the national police minister's total inability to deal with uh, criminal matters. That's kind of the whole country's problem, whereas in a strong federal system, certain states and provinces and municipalities even could do things that uh, would would solve that problem. We don't have that luxury. We do have municipal police forces and so on, but the maneuvering room that they have to kind of pursue their own policy is very limited. So that's kind of uh, a big issue. The other thing is that we we didn't we didn't kind of experiment with free markets for nearly long enough. So apartheid was for the bulk of its existence, a very state centric kind of, it, it was anti-socialist, but only anti-Marxist socialism, but very much so socialist in a, in a more general sense of government planning, government sets the agenda for the economy for, for the time being, that was very present. Um, and then again, in the eighties, when the national party became a little bit more moderate, it, it started privatizing things during the Reagan Thatcher era, kind of the global privatization drive that all happened here as well. Um, uh, 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 there was widespread deregulation and so on. And the ANC continued this for a very brief window uh, into the 1990s, maybe even into the early 2000s. And during that time, we saw healthy levels of economic growth. So I think about 5%, thereabouts, maybe a bit higher, maybe a bit lower on some years. Um, and that was really kind of the period of optimism in South Africa. Everyone was high on this idea. We're ending apartheid. We're now back as a, as a full, fully fledged member of the, the international community. Things are looking up. Um, and then, yeah, it, it kind of, we started uh, during the time of the kind of the financial crisis, 2008, but we, we started a little bit earlier, uh, this kind of anti-capitalism sentiment uh, uh, became embedded here as well. And, and uh, state control of, of, of everything uh, doubled down. And one of our biggest crises today is electricity. Um, we, we have rolling blackouts called load shedding here. Um, where sometimes we don't have electricity for up to six, uh, 12, maybe even 12 hours of the day, uh, because we have a one public utility that is responsible for electricity. And this public utility was set to be privatized by the end of the 1990s, but then it simply didn't happen because there wasn't real political will for that to happen. So these are uh, the kind of the economic policy mistakes. We didn't push the, the market, uh, free market insights, the free market potential nearly far enough to kind of drive uh, down South Africa's unemployment and, and push up our economic growth in a significant way. So uh, yeah, the, 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 on the one hand, our constitution isn't nearly strong enough uh, in an African uh, in, in the African context where governments tend to kind of just do what they want. And yeah, we, we didn't try uh, free markets for nearly long enough. But yeah, so th those are what I would identify as the two biggest mistakes. So one of the things I'm fascinated with 
South Africa and comparing to the United States is we had Jim Crow, we had slavery, and there's a lot of correlation between those two. Race relations are, are a hot topic and probably will be a hot topic as long as you and I are alive, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I, I want to live in a world where it doesn't matter. You know, it, it's just not an issue, but it will always be an issue in our lifetime. So that's one of those things we have to we have to figure out solutions to to deal with these and, and patch things up. My um, my mother lived in, in a small town in Texas and her school was lost its accreditation because it refused to desegregate. And that was in 1969. So in America, we our history isn't that far back to going, you know, going back to some of these things that you dealt with only 30, 35 years ago. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the kind of correlations between the United States and, and South African apartheid? What are some of the social policies? We talk about economic policies. What are some of the social policies, some of the social issues that we could have, that could have been done that in the, either in the United States or in South Africa that either helped or hurt, um, race relations? What, what are some of those, what are some of the issues that you brought up? Whereas, you know, did you guys have an issue with, with uh, desegregating um, uh, schools or universities, or what were some of those those social issues that came up after apartheid, and what what could have been done, what should have been done, and what was done? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I uh, I don't know if it's if it's a self serving comment, but I think as far as that is uh, like the formerly powerful grouping in South Africa, the the white South Africans, I think that there has been a, a bona fide push for integration and uh, i think that has gone very well um, so you don't have hardline groups of kind of white south africans like the south rise again in in south africa there is no groups that say let's bring back apartheid there's no groups that really say let's have a, a whites only uh, state um uh, there is there's there are secessionist movements um, but they're decidedly non-racial um, there is also a, a kind of called Afrikaner-only town in South Africa that springs into the media and the press every now and then. But it's it's a cultural town. Uh, any any black South African who is like fully committed to Afrikaner culture and the Afrikaans language would, I think, be more than welcome to live there. So you don't see kind of that that lingering. Uh, I, I don't know how to describe it, almost a kind of sense of superiority, of white superiority right. in South Africa that I think you sometimes do see amongst fringe groups in, in the United States. Um, certainly, we have racists in South Africa, that goes without saying, but it, that's not due to any kind of uh, insight into, oh, yes, but white soldiers are so much more intelligent and so forth. You just don't see that in, in, in any way. The, the, the remaining race, uh, white racists in South Africa, it's, it's kind of a, a, a cultural thing that they've just grown accustomed to. And that's like, well, they're different from us and we do our own thing. Um, so I think as far as the, the bulk of, of the, the, the the white uh, group in South Africa goes, there's been a remarkably uh, accepting uh, approach to, to race relations. Uh, so the, the um, when the National Party was finally committed to bringing apartheid to an end in 1992, it held a referendum, a whites-only referendum. Uh, and at that point, uh, it's about 60-something percent of the white electorate voted in favor of uh, negotiating with the ANC to, to end uh, the, the system of of apartheid there was no trouble around desegregation um uh, if you ask the kind of the radical left in south africa they'll say that we still have segregation in south africa today uh, because white people kind of still live where they've always lived 
and the amount of the number of black people living in those suburban areas is not it doesn't reflect the demographics of South Africa, and that's true. Uh, but that's not that's that's not segregation. That's simply the fact that the the pattern of poverty has kind of remained constant. And as I would argue, be, simply because uh, the government didn't pursue uh, nearly enough liberalization of its stranglehold of of the economy uh, to allow Black South Africans really in in, in great masses to to empower themselves out of poverty. Um, so yeah, our, our universities and so forth, most of which were uh, state universities, they were uh, desegregated, I think, even before apartheid ended. The National Party did that kind of of its own accord through the 1970s, I think, even into the 80s and in, into the 90s. Uh, school segregation, uh, I think that kind of held out a little bit longer than the 80s. Uh, so school schooling was uh, very strictly segregated here. Uh, but the moment apartheid ended, it became illegal to uh, constitutionally illegal to uh, deny anyone schooling based on on the color of their skin. And to my knowledge, there weren't any school governing bodies or anything that kind of litigated about that or tried any schemes. I know um, in, in the United States, some sovereign schools became private and then they kind of used that as strategy to keep uh, black black Americans out. Uh, that didn't happen here. Uh, there is, uh, to my knowledge, no private school group in South Africa that kind of tries to deny people um, uh, on the basis of their race uh, entry and so on. So yeah, there is the, I, I think that there are parallels, uh, certainly between uh, Jim Crow and, and, and the American self and South Africa. The, the one thing I'm quite happy about is that South Africa never had um, kind of the kind of eugenics uh, type of bio biological argument. Even the National Party and their predecessors never, to my knowledge, really made the argument that uh, Blacks had some kind of... Uh, biological inferiority that will just permanently mean that they need to serve serve whites the kind of the argument for apartheid was that these are two different cultures and that to protect uh, of course a very perverse uh, idea but to protect these cultures we have to keep them separate uh, from one another and that obviously ended up serving white south africans significantly more and and armed black south africans uh, to a to a huge degree um, but there was never that kind of uh, uh, race, race realist, or whatever they they call it nowadays, kind of uh, push for uh, um, that. There was never a black genocide or anything like that. A lot of people on the radical left say that the apartheid government tried to wipe out black South Africans. No such thing ever happened, nor did it ever cross uh, anyone's mind. Um, uh, so that's that's the one thing I'm I'm quite happy about, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, race relations in South Africa really are that good. Um, uh, we, we've really adapted to the new reality of having a, a largely integrated society. Um, uh, but yes, uh, it's, it's still, race is obviously still a big topic here. Um, and, and like the United States, it's very much something that's been, that's being kept alive by the intelligentsia, by media and by, um, by universities. It's not something that you really come across uh, in your ordinary everyday kind of interactions at coffee shops and restaurants and, and in the streets, people aren't uh, obsessing over race and so forth. Uh, so I, I think that's that's something that post-apartheid South Africa can be very proud of. Um, but but yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the, the kind of the, the government's inability to or, or unwillingness rather to to really liberalize economics uh, really did produce the fact that socially, 
uh, we still see the uh, these shanty towns, uh, ten mm. ten built towns that are basically exclusively black, and suburbs which are in large part still white, but by no means exclusively uh, exclusively white. So yeah, it's it's kind of these things are are downstream and upstream from each other. We we do need significantly freer markets here and and significantly more limited government uh, before the the mass of poor South Africans, largely black South Africans can have that ability to empower themselves, to get a job and to provide for their families. I, I had a quick question, Jonathan, if it's okay with you uh, about that. So I do want to talk to you before we run out of time at some point about what tactically that looks like. What are those liberal solutions, maybe some policy ideas? Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that here in a minute. But I, I am curious because we met before we close the book on race relations mm -hmm. in the United States, a big topic of conversation is reparations. It's, you know, this conversation that, hey, you know, these people were enslaved, there were systemic uh, mm -hmm. hurdles to their ability to build generational wealth, and it caused them to be impoverished because of these government and, and you know, uh, systemic uh, barriers to their success historically. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, situations like, you know, like District 6 in South Africa, mm -hmm. there are so many examples of the government getting in the way of um, people's ability to thrive historically. And I, you can imagine, mm -hmm. I'm sure you, you, you know, you know, this more better than anyone else. It creates a barrier for them to build that generational yeah. wealth, which obviously, so I see correlations be between the same kind of conversations happening on the United yes. States and, and in South Africa. Do you think there's a liberal solution to that question? Like how do you account for these historic injustices? How do you mm -hmm. think about that kind of question, that kind of conversation? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, my, the the former head of the of the free market foundation said that there is such a thing called the tough shit rule and i i think that's that's true to to a significant extent but it's, it's not great but it is unfortunately a reality and that is that human history is ugly um it's human history is an, a never-ending process of migration and conquest and and oppression which we as liberals finally kind of have the answer to ending uh, and that's great and we need to persist with that but one cannot indefinitely look back into history and try and repair every individual case of oppression that still kind of has legacy effects today. There are places where you can do that. And uh, the, the one thing that I think is very clear is land, property. Uh, if you as an individual can prove that this piece of property belonged to your kind of ancestor in title, the person who would have bequeathed this property to your ancestors and so on to you, and you can prove that in court, then you should. And under South African law, you can uh, apply to court and get that property back. And there's been, that. since since 1995, there's been a, a great process of land restitution in South Africa. Uh, it's been very successful. The radical left in South Africa will say it's been a total disaster, but it's been very successful because most of the claims have been dealt with. I think there were about 1.6 million claims and most of them have been dealt with. There's still a backlog. Um, but uh, the, the thing that the left is unhappy about is they want these individuals who uh, uh, make these claims to become farmers. I mean, this is not, this is not something that is true only to, for the South African left, this romanticization of kind of like the peasant kind of, we, we need to go back to a pre-industrial revolution day where people lived on the land and they were farming and they were, they were peasants and so on. So they're very unhappy about the fact that black South Africans who make that, that case in court and prove that this land is in fact theirs, choose rather to be compensated with money. 
people want to live in urban areas, and that is as true for black South Africans as it is for anyone around the world. They don't want the farm to go and farm. They choose money. So the, the law does allow you to either get the land back or to be compensated for the loss. And by far, most have chosen to be compensated so that they can live in the cities, get jobs, live in the suburbs, uh, uh, as one would expect from anyone anywhere around the world. There are some South Africans who say that there should be kind of a white tax where people pay reparations. Uh, the fact is South Africa is, I think, one of the 10 most highly taxed South Af uh, countries in the world. Um, and white South Africans being uh, more, more wealthy relatively have paid, I, I think, a huge uh, proportion in taxes since the 1990s. Um, so uh, that, that's been there and done that. But ultimately, and this is maybe uh, another mistake we made, is that at some point, South Africa needs to stop being post-apartheid. Like at, at some point, the society needs to uh, shift its gears to looking forward. Uh, and unfortunately, our constitution is a permanently post-apartheid constitution. It, it has many references to apartheid. So as far as constitutional law is concerned, South Africa will permanently be in 1995 forevermore, uh, which is, it's not ideal. You kind of want to, to have a system where, where uh, uh, policies are made based on evidence and rationality rather than based on history that is now uh, receding further and further uh, back in, in, into the past. So I think that as far as liberals are concerned, we need to look at what is what is fairly and possibly giveable, and that is land. It's identifiable. You can say that this person is rightly the owner of this land. It was taken from his ancestors 100 years ago, and he should receive the land back, or if he wants, he must be compensated. Uh, a random guy saying, well, I'm unemployed and I happen to be black, so kind of someone owes me some money. It, it gets a bit iffy there. And the added complication in South Africa is that we are largely a poor society. We do not have what Europe has, what the United States has, which is a very long history of, of huge amounts of economic growth, mm -hmm. huge economic reserves. We simply cannot, uh, if, if we even if we wanted to, we could not even afford to pay a, a fraction of the type of reparations that would be payable in theory if such a program were to be implemented. And, and increasingly, uh, high net worth South Africans are leaving in droves, uh, immigrating, uh, black South Africans included. Um, simply because of how the situation in this country has been mismanaged, how crime is just not being addressed and so forth. So the pool of economic resources here is 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 so limited that that none of that would even be be possible. So rather uh, skip that point and and implement the kind of the tried and tested methods of economic growth and economic empowerment that um, liberal economics have have shown shown worked. When when you kind of compare, you know, it's interesting kind of comparing the United States again to South Africa in terms of, of, of coming out of these systems, either coming out of slavery, coming out of the Jim Crow laws, and they're coming out of apartheid. It strikes me as very different that, it, that South Africa was able to come out of apartheid where the people who are giving up power, the, the you know, whites in South Africa were giving up this power. Um, mm. They didn't feel like it belonged to them. Whereas in America, Whenever power was taken away from the ruling, you know, the ruling class, either slavery or or in Jim Crow, where they, you know, where they were actively discriminating against people, um, that it, they felt, I, you know, it seems like in South Africa they've avoided this kind of systemic 
undertones of well, this, something was taken from us. You know, the, this mm. idea that that um, uh, well, the, you know, it's this federal government forcing us to give up slaves or forcing us to give up these Jim Crow laws. It's it's mm. really interesting. It strikes me that it, it, it turned out quite differently in South Africa mm. because it seems like it sounds like from what you were saying, there was a cultural shift away from those apartheid policies just on its own naturally um, mm -hmm. in the United States, sadly that never happened. And so I think that that's, that's caused a lot of our, our issues going forward. And in many cases mm -hmm. in the United States, you have, you have uh, a lasting history of Jim Crow laws because we ended Jim Crow. Well, then we started up the drug war. And so they were mm -hmm. able to arrest mm -hmm. all the same, all the same black people that they wanted to yeah. after that, all the, so you, so you kind of have this, this, you know, Jim Crow didn't really end, right. It just, kind of continued on in different ways. Are there mm -hmm. still things with apartheid that, that have kind of continued on or was that pretty clearly cut off? So, yeah, a, a, a lot of the kind of the logic of the apartheid government continued un, uninterrupted. So um, the kind of state-owned enterprises thing continues on. Uh, it's not like um, we went from a socialist government to a capitalist government. It's very much a different form of socialism. So kind of those structural assumptions remain the same. As far as race is concerned, interestingly, so I, for the Institute of Race Relations, I still run the race law project. You can have a look at racelaw.co.za, which kind of catalogs all the race laws that are currently or and in the past on the books in South Africa. Um, so in total, since 1910, when the Union of South Africa was first created, there have been around 300 and something race laws um, in all. Um, and nowadays, uh, we have about 116 race laws still in South Africa on the books at the national level. Uh, now, granted, all of these, uh, virtually all of these, 90% plus, are justified as trying to undo the, the consequences of the past. So it's kind of affirmative action laws and so forth. But uh, they still fundamentally make use of the same racial categories that the apartheid government made use of, which is white, black, Indian, uh, which would be, uh, we have a large population of Indian descended South Africans in South Africa, and coloreds, which are people of mixed race in South Africa. So these four races still continue in, in kind of law in South Africa as, as categories. They're no longer in your, in your like ID book or on your passport or anything like that as they used to be, but you have to self classify your race in many business areas of the country. So if you want to do business with government, uh, get a contract to supply government with something or other, or to supply uh, an area with something on behalf of government, you have to show that your shareholding is X percentage black. Uh, you have to show uh, the, the, the latest thing uh, quite ridiculously is if you are like a, an agricultural, uh, a commercial farmer, or you have another business that relies on, on water, uh, we they nationalized water in South Africa in 1998. Then you have to show that you have a 75% black shareholding before your water use license will be approved by the government. So I mean, this is not something that would be out of out of character for apartheid South Africa, and it's being done today. In fact, it's it's a new regulation. It's a new policy of the year 2023. So we still see quite a bit of that uh, public uh, racialism in public policy being implemented here. And it's always, it's, of, of course, it's always going to be justified on the basis of no, but we're trying to undo uh, the, the effects of apartheid. But that's simply not, uh, once you get an insight into how the ANC, the African National Congress works, and that ultimately everything it does is a way to plug some new 
political ally into some stream of tax money, um, then you'll understand that this is all just a facade for the ANC to increase its power and to uh, enrich individuals within the power, the, uh, within the party. The only way the ANC kind of functions is because there are huge patronage networks that kind of uh, keep it all going. And uh, as more political support becomes dependent on that uh, for, for an individual like the current president to kind of get through uh, a party congress to kind of be, remain the leader, he needs to give increasingly amount uh, larger access to tax resources and so on to uh, polit political functionaries somewhere. And that's what these types of regulations ultimately get used for, despite being justified on the basis of, of being a, a redress, a measure of redress after apartheid. So yeah, unfortunately, uh, I, I think South Africa is still one of the countries in the world with the greatest sheer number of race laws and race policies on the book. So that's that's very much still here. And that's something that as liberal as the IRR and the Free Market Foundation and so on, that, that we certainly condemn uh, as as the IRR, which um, uh, Josh mentioned was, it's, it's probably the oldest continuously existing classically liberal organization in the world. It was founded in 1929. Um, it was against apartheid and race policy back then, uh, all through all through to today. The Free Market Foundation was founded in 1975 at the height of apartheid, very much against race policy back then and remains so very much today. Very interesting. One thing I love about liberalism and just the tradition of from through enlightenment is how how forward thinking it is, how forward looking it is. It's just like, let's focus on the future. And it sounds like to me, from what I've, I've understood from this conversation is that the South African government is very much backward looking. It's, yeah. it's looking at the past and, and it's, and it's understandable. There's, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of, um, uh, horrific things happened in the past as really any government. And, and as mm -hmm. I, I like the tough shit rule, I think that that, I think that that applies in a lot of things. Life isn't fair. Life, mm -hmm. um, Life isn't isn't ever going to be fair. We just have to mm. figure out the guidelines for for society and 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 uh, try to apply them equally um, mm. to everyone. So I appreciate I appreciate this conversation. I think it was it was fascinating to to mm. kind of get a different perspective. Um, I think that Americans in particular are very uh, American centric. We don't really pay attention to what's going on in other countries unless it makes the news, unless it's Russia invading Ukraine, unless it's uh, unless it's somebody chanting "kill the Boers" in South Africa, right? So we 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 lose sight, I think, of a lot of context and a lot of things. Things when we just see snippets of the news here and there. And so I think that that's what we really wanted to accomplish here was to kind of give a, a broader picture of what's going on in in South Africa. And I think I think you did a really uh, wonderful job in in kind of describing what's going on down there. I I really appreciate you coming on. Do you have anything you want to kind of plug or or throw out there? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, the Free Market Foundation in particular considers itself um, quite connected to the rest of the, the liberal slash libertarian movement around the world. Uh, the, uh, we're, we're partners of the Canadian Fraser Institute. Uh, we're also uh, close partners of the American Atlas Network. Um, also, a Koch brothers founded conspiracy and so on. So we're we're very uh, keen on on that. Um, uh, uh, we we have historical relations with the Cato Institute and so on. A uh, lot of people around the Mises Institute. Um, some some savory, others kind of not always savory. Um, we have those relationships, and we're proud of that. And we we definitely see ourselves as part of a, a, a global movement where we're not. Um, 
where we we do have specific problems in South Africa, but increasingly we we think that a lot of these problems are global, and that the solutions obviously uh, are global. Uh, we we are all part of the same kind of liberal tradition of free markets, individual liberty, uh, constitutionalism, and and we're very proud of that. So yes, I uh, personally I I tend to comment mostly on South African issues, um, but uh, uh, if if anyone is keen to follow me or to to get the kind of liberal perspective on these things. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. You, they can follow me on Twitter. It's at Martin underscore ASFL. Um, uh, by the way, ASFL is African Students for Liberty. You might be aware of Students for Liberty. Uh, Josh, I know you were involved oh, yeah. there. Uh, yeah. uh, that, that was kind of my entry into the libertarian movement. Uh, Beautiful. Uh, to, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm very proud of my, my, my history of SFL. Um, so it's always going to be in my Twitter bio, uh, Twitter uh, uh, tag at least. Um, so yeah, follow me on Twitter. I am on Facebook as well. Um, but the, if if anyone wants to stay up to date on all of my articles, my media appearances on TV and radio, etc., and podcasts and stuff like this, uh, my website is the best place to see that, and that's martinvanstaden.com. Um, and yeah, please also follow the Free Market Foundation. It's freemarketfoundation.com and the Institute of Race Relations, which is irr.org. And yeah, I must uh, uh, just as a parting shot say I really appreciate what, what you guys at Project Liberal are doing. Um, I know that there's kind of been a, an attempt to make classical liberalism in the United States an increasingly national conservative thing, which I look at very trepidatiously and then and, and very, yeah. con very concerned about that. Uh, that's the last thing liberals around the world need is the the american liberal movement kind of becoming even more insular so what you guys are doing is great reclaiming the word liberal is something i'm trying to do in south africa and it's i'm very glad that you guys are are doing that in the united states i can only say keep it up um uh, make sure the libertarian party gets back on message at some stage <laughs> um and yeah uh thanks again for having me and let's do it again sometime thanks martin have a great day guys